Let's take our Bibles and let's look for the final time in this series of tell the story again to Genesis 32 today. Genesis 32. Next week, we'll begin our messages regarding Christmas and look forward to that opportunity on the 17th and on the morning of the 24th. And then we'll gather back on Christmas Eve at 9 p.m. for our traditional Christmas Eve service. Always a favorite at Meadowbrook. Genesis 32. While you're moving there, let me give you a little bit of a background of some of the eternal thought of God regarding what I'm going to share from Genesis 32. When Jesus came into Galilee, beginning his public ministry, he proclaimed, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at, at hand. Repent and believe. Repent and have faith. Uh, people will often add to the mandates of the gospel saying that oh you have to be obedient you have to be a worshiper you have to be part of ministry you need to be generous uh, you need to attend regularly or there's some other element that they uh, add to the gospel mandate but those are actually aspects of living in the kingdom of God as people who are saved that's what saved people do that's not how we get saved we get saved very easily. This is what the Bible tells us and Christ preached and even John the precursor of Christ taught. The only requirement for salvation is repentance and faith. Glory be to God for that. That is the requirement. So one of the rec recurring messages throughout the Bible is actually one that's very blunt. It says, salvation never comes by work. It is always a gift, a gracious gift of God. It's how we're saved. So Jesus spent a little bit of time, actually a whole lot of time, debunking the idea that there is any other measure by which somebody can earn salvation. Salvation is never earned. It doesn't come by your traditions. It doesn't come by your obedience. It doesn't come by your works. Salvation comes in Christ. For example, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable of a, a Pharisee and a tax collector because he knew that, as he said in verse 9 of chapter 18, some trusted in themselves for righteousness. So knowing that, he tells a parable to illustrate the absurdity of that. And if you remember the parable, two men go into the temple and pray. The Pharisee says to, to God in prayer, I'm so glad that I'm not like all these other people around here. And then he points out all the sins of the people that are standing around here, including a tax collector who was a chief of sinners, uh, one who cheated his own people for his own monetary gain and sort of sold his soul out for the Roman government in order to be made rich. He says, I, I'm glad, God, that I am not like these people. And then he begins to tell all the things that, that uh, he, he does well. It's a deceived heart. Catch that. That's a deceived heart when you're looking at everybody else's sin and you see only your life is being good and righteous. And then Jesus says in the parable that the, the tax collector who identifies with all of us who are sinners beats his chest before God and cries out, Lord, help me. Woe to me, for I am a sinner. Be merciful. And Jesus says, I'll tell you this, that that man 
went home justified. That man recognized it wasn't about his works of righteousness. He recognized that it would only be by the mercy of God that he could be saved. And Jesus said, that man goes home justified. Salvation doesn't come by works. It comes by faith. And then following that parable, Luke describes Jesus still around those same people and there are parents bringing infants to him in order that he might bless those little babies. If you remember that, the disciples kind of hurry them away, dissuading them from doing that. But Jesus says, oh no, let those children come to me. And he puts one of them in his lap. And he does so to make the point, saying, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, this is a continuation of the teaching. Here's some who believe themselves to be righteous. They say, at least we're not like them, and they talk about all their own righteous deeds. There's others who recognize they have nothing to offer God in good works. There's no way they could ever enter into his kingdom, and so they beg for his mercy. They are then justified. He brings a child to his lap, and he says to all of the people standing around, if you don't come to the kingdom like this baby then you cannot enter into it. Now, you and I know that babies have no means whatsoever to live out their lives with sustainability. And so that little girl, maybe he was holding, she would not be able to even roll over, sit up, feed herself, change herself. There's nothing about her life that she could bring any measure of works for self-reliance. She was totally dependent, that little baby was, on somebody else providing for her. So Jesus is making the point, until you recognize you are totally dependent on God's mercy to enter into his kingdom, you shall not enter into it. He said, why are you preaching so hard about that? Because that is the major point of the gospel. That's the reason why it is the gospel. Euangelion, it is the good news. That's great news to us. There's no measure by which you and I can work to enter the kingdom. That's an absolute truth that Jesus makes radically clear. You and I have no means except for God's mercy and grace to enter into his kingdom. We are saved by faith through Christ alone. So we are unequivocally dependent upon God's grace. Jesus stated it this way over in Matthew chapter 5 when he's giving this famed sermon on the mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who realize they are spiritually broke. Blessed are they. For the kingdom of heaven, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, Think about the people who are surrounding Jesus in this moment of Matthew 18. You have the Pharisees who are around him and the disciples who are around him. The Pharisees are those learned men, those who are disciplined and determined to do whatever it takes in order to obey the law of God or for many of them to be perceived as obeying the law of God. They knew the law, they taught the God and the, uh, the law of God and they admonished others to follow his law, believing that they somehow could earn their way into heaven. And then there's the disciples. And remember, the disciples in this narrative are asking, who is going to be the greatest among us? Who's going to be seated at your right? And who's going to be seated at your left? And so these are men who are after position and pursuit of those positions. And so Jesus holding an infant says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are like this infant. 
It's not about your works. It's not about your pursuit. It's not about your positioning. Now put yourself, if you were there in the time of Jesus and hearing his words, get over the fact that you are wearing a tunic. (laughs) Ignore the idea that today for breakfast you ate barley pita with some salted fish and some olives. And there you are in the midst of Christ and you're hearing him say these words to you. He's dismantling all the pious framing of those who have been surrounding him all this time. Imagine Jesus looking you in the eye and him say to you, unless you are like this baby in faith, you will not enter the kingdom of God. If you were there, would your mind be open to the audacity and the apostasy of thinking that you could earn your way to heaven. Most people couldn't get over that. They walked away thinking, I probably can. If I work a little bit harder, if I clean up a little bit more, if I just prove to him my heart is right, I probably can. And I'm here to tell you, you can't. You can't. So I pray those penetrating words of truth will provoke you and me today to think that maybe we could have been misguided along the way in our life and our traditions to believe that somehow we could earn our way into a perfect and holy kingdom where no sin could be allowed. And perhaps today we could know that God, who is altogether just, will never give somebody a pass for all the injustice in their life. And maybe it is today that we would recognize that there is no way that God is going to credit our traditions or our work as righteousness, but he only does that by faith. And in recognizing that, we can come away from such wayward thinking that leads to such a wrong understanding of salvation and a broad road of damnation and come to the reality that we miss the mark we are no way in the standard of God and we are in need of his mercy to enter his kingdom now let's suppose that the Bible here is today giving us an understanding exposing that kind of wayward thinking with real intentionalities Based on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's clear that our comparisons mean nothing, that our works are filthy before him, that our claims of obedience is a mockery to the holiness of his law, and our attempt of righteousness is an affront to him. Maybe you're thinking, okay, Randy, we got it. That's enough. You can, you can get out of my face, and you can get off my back. But I'm not the one bringing that kind of conflict. That's the word of God by his spirit. You might be feeling those words as kind of a wrangling in your life, but that's not me wrestling you. That is Jesus wrestling you, and he will wrestle your self-reliance and dependency of self to the mat. And that's what was happening in the 32nd chapter of Genesis as Jacob would wrestle with Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's going to wrestle self-dependency and reliance to the mat to the point that Jacob will finally say, I give. That's a lot of buildup, isn't it? 
Jacob, as you remember, is the twin son born to Isaac and Rebekah, and he was always wrestling for position, his brother's position. He wanted to be first, but he was born second. He wanted all the benefits, though, of being the firstborn son. So he literally was named the heel grabber, the supplanter. And so he connived Esau out of his birthright over a bowl of stew and he deceived his blind father making him believe that he was Esau when in fact he was Jacob stealing the blessing of his father and when the ruse came to light Isaac explained over in the 27th chapter of Genesis your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing Esau says is he not rightly named Jacob supplanter for he has cheated me these two times he took away my birthright and behold now he has taken away my blessing and by the end of chapter 27 of Genesis Esau is intending to kill his brother Jacob he's just waiting on his father to die so that he won't be so grieved and Jacob is fleeing the promised land and he's going to travel about 600 miles to his mother's extended family in Haran last week we looked at Genesis 28 and as Jacob is traveling out of the promised land he encounters God through a dream in which God was actively helping him to understand that he is working in his life to bring about the will and the promises that have been established and that God is assuring him he will bring him back to that land. And upon arrival, he meets his mother's father, Laban, and that uncle of his proves to be as much of a deceiver, if not more, than Jacob. Nevertheless, Jacob falls in love with Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, and he intends to marry her, and they establish an agreement that Jacob would work seven years for the right to marry the daughter, Rachel, who he loved so much. However, Laban deceived Jacob and gave him Leah, the older, and this is the Bible's words, not mine, the plainer-looking one, Laban on the night of the wedding brought Leah veiled into the tent and the marriage was consummated with the wrong woman. That's a deception, isn't it? <laughs> I want to make a joke about my sister-in-law, but I'm stopping right now by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to keep my mouth closed and not say a thing about her. But blessed be the name of the Lord, I married the right one. <laughs> Laban deceives Jacob by giving Leah the older, rather plain-looking daughter on the night of the wedding. And he ex extorts out of Jacob another seven years of work in order to have Rachel's hand in marriage. All of that, of course, is not in the will of God. And during this time, he is using deceptive business practices to manipulate and exploit Jacob, his son-in-law. It appears that Jacob was no match for the creative deception of his father-in-law and uncle, Laban. But all of that is soon to change. Jacob's compensation is supposed to be he's going to get some of the animals that he is tending of the flock of Laban. He would receive all the speckled and the spotted goats and all the black sheep. And on the day in which that agreement was made Laban actually tells his sons go take all the speckled and the spotted and the black and take them three days away so that all the genetic pool of those animals are gone 
and anything that's left will be Laban's and there will be nothing for Jacob. Wow, what a deceptive trick for him. But through clever breeding techniques and divine intervention, Jacob successfully bred the regressive genes found in those animals and he, can, he accumulates significant wealth for himself. When Jacob recognized now that the in-laws are against him, they are not in favor of him, and the Lord instructed him, you need to go back to the land of your kindred, he left. And it just happened to be really convenient for him that Laban was actually a little ways away shearing sheep. And he thought, this is my time to leave while he's gone. And I am going to gather up all my people and possessions, the large flocks that he held, and the female servants, the male servants, the camels, and the donkeys, and they all left while Laban and his boys were not there. On the third day of their journey, word reaches Laban what's happened. And he jumps up and he begins to gather his own family to pursue after them. He's going to take back all that Jacob has taken from him. And he'll probably kill Jacob. But on the night before he gets to where Jacob and the others are, God appears to him and he says, oh, no, don't say a word to him about it, neither good nor bad. So when they catch up on the seventh day, they find them east of Galilee. And the scripture says in Genesis 32 that Laban said, what, you have, what have you done? You have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and treat, trick me and not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and song, that's joy and songs, with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters, my grandchildren? Farewell. Now you have done foolishly. Now as the Lord had warned him, he didn't go any further. They settled their disputes and they make a pledge right there not to ever cross that line again. Jacob would not go north where his father-in-law lived and his father-in-law would not come south beyond that point where Jacob and the family lived they were over and Jacob goes on his way and as he did he meets angels of God now remember angels of God met him when he was leaving the promised land and now as he's entering back into the promised land angels of God are meeting him there I'm sure it was a reminder God said at the last time he met him, I will be with you, I will bring about your, my will, and I will bring you back into this land. And now when he meets those angels, all that must have clicked again to him. I don't know what they said, what transpired, that's all we know. One verse, and he's, he met angels again. So Jacob sends messengers to Esau, his brother, letting him know that he would be returning and hoping that he would find favor with his brother. Remember, the last thing his brother said, I'm going to kill you. So he instructed the messengers, tell my brother about all the wealth that I have. I think in a way he might be saying, after all, I didn't need my father's wealth. I've got my own. I'm coming back home, a wealthy man. And the messenger spoke that to Esau and Esau said, tell my brother, I'm coming to meet him. And he told him, your brother is coming to meet you with 400 men. <laughs> what do you think that did to Jacob? I tell you what it did, it terrified him. Believing that his brother probably was coming to kill him, that he had plotted that 
strategy of killing him for many years now it's coming back Jacob immediately divides up his family he puts them in two groups the livestock go into two camps as well and he's thinking that if Esau attacks one of them maybe the other can escape and then he turns to the Lord in prayer now listen I'm giving you big chunks of the story at one time so you got to dial in when I give you a very specific and here's one of them This is the first and only time recorded in the Bible that Jacob ever prays to the Lord for deliverance. It's the only prayer. And by the way, it's the longest prayer that is written in the book of Genesis. So this is a big deal, right? This is a prayer for the first time for deliverance. You say, what's the big deal about that? Jacob didn't need deliverance because he was a deceiver, a supplanter. He could bring it about in his own self-reliance and self-sufficiency. He never saw the need for prayer. I've stated it many, many times, a a grand signal of pride in our lives is when we have prayerlessness in our lives. So Jacob's a prideful man. He's one that's self-reliant, self-sufficient. I can handle this. I can do it. And I can do it by trickery if I need to. I can outwit anybody, he's thinking. But now, he turns to the Lord in prayer. What a movement in our lives when the Spirit of God moves in us to pray to him in prayer. God is up to something. And surely he is. Listen to this prayer. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Listen to this prayer. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and the faith, all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and I now have become two camps. Now, what does that tell you? Here, the self-reliant, self-sufficient one is saying, I crossed this Jordan with only a staff in my hand. I am not worthy of all the steadfast love you have shown me by multiplying me into two camps. That's a confession. Lord, I've come to the reckoning that I have done none of this, but it's your steadfast love and faithfulness to me. You have done what you promised to do. And Lord, I'm acknowledging that. Then he goes on to pray, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which, I, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You know what I think Jacob is saying there? Lord, I'm trusting in you and your word. I have real fear. I believe that he's willing to kill me. He's not gonna just kill me. He's gonna kill the mothers and the children. He's gonna kill us all. But Lord, I remember you said that you would multiply my descendants like the sand. So I'm trusting you. There's a seismic shift that has happened in his heart and it's coming out in his words of prayer. The things that we pray reveal the words that are embedded in our heart. Finally, the deceiver, the supplanter has admitted that he is unworthy of God's steadfast love and faithfulness and he has kept him safe and made him rich even though Jacob is a deceiver at heart. 
He prays for God's deliverance, knowing that there's no trickery or plan or deception that Jacob could bring himself out of this place of trouble. He's afraid of his death, knowing that if God doesn't intervene, it will not happen. The children and the mothers are going to be executed. So he's saying, please, Lord, in an expression of faith, please save me and let your word be true. I can hear the change in Jacob's prayer. We can see that in his life. The evidence of self-reliance and self-sufficiency seem to be gone. There's certainly a breaking down. God has been testing him for the last 20 years, fashioning, shaping him to the point that he could come to understand that he is nothing without God. There is no works by which he will enter again the promised land without God's mercy and grace. And for 20 years, that lesson has been taught. Can we just take a time out right here and just put ourselves in that spot? If you look back over the last two decades of your life, what has God been leading you to understand? What do you know best about him now? What do you know about your life? What do you know about his spirit's work in your life? The troubles, the, the circumstances, the grief, the, the suffering, the pain, the experiences. What about all that could you look back and see, I see the hand of God in those points bringing me to this. What is that? Where has he been leading you like he's been leading Jacob? So Jacob determines to send gifts to his brother ahead of his own appearance before him. He's got the family separated. There's a great treasure that is going towards his brother. Jacob is isolated. His family, his servants, his wealth, his resources are all separated from him. He is absolutely alone. The scripture says in Genesis 32, 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. That one verse is incredibly intriguing. There's a lot taking place in that verse. If you know the narrative, you know the fullness of that verse. In the darkness of night, all alone, suddenly a man appears. I would think at first Jacob's thinking, Jacob has found me. He couldn't even wait for tomorrow. He has found me in the night and certainly is he is attempting to kill me. I would guess that would be Jacob's thought, or maybe he's thinking, oh, this is, one of, this is one of Esau's men who have pursued after me, and he is attempting to destroy me, to kill me. Uh, maybe he's thinking, this is some guy who's taking advantage of me, a wealthy guy who is all alone, and he's a thief, and he's trying to take what is mine. I don't know what he was thinking, but he was thinking altogether wrong until he recognized this was the hand of God. When did he know that? In the midst of the night, while they're wrestling, in the darkest time, in the early morning hours, before the sun rises, the man wrestling him touches his hip and immediately it pops out a joint. That's when he knew. This is not Esau. This is not Esau's men. This is not a robber. This is none other than God. I, the power that was demonstrated in that moment of the contention. He knew that this was God because he immediately asked for a blessing. Just immediately recognized that. Verse 25, and the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he was wrestling with him. And he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let go of you unless you bless me. 
So with day dawning, the man has had enough. Jesus has had enough, and he touched Jacob's hip, and instantaneously the bone was out of socket. The pain was instant. His weakness was suddenly exposed. Jacob no longer worried or wondered about the man. This was no more mere mortal. Nobody could possess that kind of power. He knew that he was contending with God in the flesh. Now that had happened before. Not the wrestling, but that God had made his appearance in the flesh and Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. In fact, he appeared to his, his grandfather, Abraham. I don't know it to be the case, but the Lord did appear to Isaac, his father, as well. I don't know if that was... Uh, the Lord Christ or the Holy Spirit God making himself known scripture doesn't tell us that but he stood before Gideon he stood before Joshua he stood before others Daniel he was in the midst of the the fiery furnace with his friends and Daniel in the lion's den Christ had made himself known in all those times and places and now he recognizes this is Christ the Lord in the midst of his cry and pain and the exhaustion of wrestling him, he clings to him and he says, I will not let go of you unless you bless me. But there would be no blessing until there was first a confession. And so the Lord puts him to test and he says, what is your name? And he says, my name is Jacob, the deceiver supplanter the heel grabber the one who's always sought after what belonged to somebody else that's my name Jacob there's a lot that comes to confess in that moment of just his name only the spirit of God can bring us to that place only the spirit with his conviction can bring us to the point that you say before God oh God here's who I am I'm a liar, I'm a thief, an adulterer, a fornicator. I'm a cheat. I'm a prideful person, arrogant, haughty, gossip. Only God could help us in those moments to come to clarity about who we are. And in that moment where he says, I am this, I'm a supplanter. I'm the one who deceives to get what he wants. This is a, a confession that just comes out of Jacob. In verse 28, then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob. That's not who you are. You will be Israel for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. I think what he's saying there, if I could just unpack it, Jacob, you have striven with people your whole life. You strove with Esau in your mother's womb. You strove with him as a man to get the birthright from him. You strove with your father Isaac, deceiving him to receive his blessing. You strove with Laban and you became rich. You have striven with men and you have prevailed. And now you have striven with God and God has allowed you to prevail. Not by deceit, not by supplanting, not by your own sufficiency, but by God's grace. Proof is I can touch your hip and knock it out of joint. I could take your life in an instant, but by my grace, you have prevailed. So your name will no longer be deceiver. Your name will be Israel. God was making him new. 
I like the way one writer put it. He said, as a deceiver, Jacob is not allowed to enter the promised land as Israel. He, is may, he may enter the land and receive it as a gift, an inheritance from God's hand. There's a whole lot of talk right now about who that land belongs to, what people ought to be there. I'm here to tell you from ancient days, by God's voice himself, the land belongs to Israel. Now, here's the main point of the narrative. One that I think Jesus would have us to hear and be insistent about. Jacob attempted to work in a deceptive way to get what God had already promised him. He had been deceiving and supplanting in a way to wrangle the kingdom, the land, the promised land. He wanted it so that he was going to deceive and do whatever he could in order to get it in self-reliance and self-sufficiency and with great deceit. And for 20 years, God sends him away and he works into his heart and mind the understanding that your deception is gonna get you nowhere but brokenness. And so as he's calling him to come back into the land, he has this moment of wrestling with him, breaking down and pinning the deception and the reliance and the sufficiency to the mat to the point that Jacob has to tap out. And when he taps out, God says, okay, now by my grace, enter into this land, but enter into this land a different man. One who understands my grace. And that's what God's calling for you and me. Some of you have been working, going to church, doing and giving all your life, thinking that one day perhaps God would say, yes, you've earned the right to be in the kingdom of heaven. No, your self-sufficiency and reliance is being pinned to the mat today to the point that you tap out spiritually and you say, only by the grace and kindness of my Lord may I enter in put my faith and trust in Jesus that's the whole narrative of what he's moving us toward so Jacob departed 20 years before with the sun setting that night resting what he thought was going to be rest for the night he dreams and in that dream God told him the land that you're lying on I will give to you and your offspring and I'll bring you back. I'm going to go with you, and I will bring you back. And now upon entering, the sun is rising. And as it's rising, he is assuring him of a new beginning, a new destiny in that land. And from that day forward, Israel limped. It would forever remind him of the dependence that he had on God. Some of you have trouble with your hip, your knee, your legs, your bones, whatever. And every night when you lie down, you know the pain. And every time you get up, you feel the stiffness. That's exactly what Israel was living with. But it wasn't just that he had pain and suffering. It was that he knew he needed the all-sufficient grace of his God. It was a limb. I can only imagine Somebody coming up to him and saying, hey, my name is so-and-so, what's your name? My name is Israel. Israel, what happened to you? Why do you limp like that? Well, sit down, I got a story to tell you. Man, some of us have a story to tell. It's a story of pain and suffering and brokenness. It's a story of grace and love and kindness 
and you limp with it. It's marked you. You wish you could get away from it, but it, it just kind of lingers. And it's a constant reminder. God's grace is transforming you. Not you. Not you getting stronger, getting better. Not you working, achieving, striving, positioning, pursuing. It's you resting in the grace of God. Enter into his kingdom. In the name of Jesus, with faith in him, enter into his kingdom, changed, transformed, instantly by his Holy Spirit. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, perhaps today your Holy Spirit is speaking and touching deeply into the minds and the hearts of people, helping them to come to truth about who they are and all the self-reliance and the self-sufficiency that we have built up in our mind and thinking that perhaps we might gain something from you. With conclusion, we say, Lord, unless you bless us, we will not be blessed. Unless you transform us, we will not enter into your kingdom. Unless you save us, we will die rejected. So we come to you with repentance and belief. In the name of Jesus. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, just ask, is God speaking to you in a way like he spoke to Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, calling you to a point of faith, calling you to a different life, a life in repentance where you walk in the way of Christ by the power of his spirit? Is God calling you into his spiritual kingdom for which you will never enter without his goodness and love, mercy, and grace? Then come to him. Come to him in faith. You might pray a prayer similar to this. Lord Jesus, I find myself completely removed from you. I long to be with you, but my life is so contrary to you and your word and what you require. And though I have attempted to do what is good, I've done it in my own strength. So today, I confess I'm a sinner. I'm one who has stood in opposition to you and rebelled against you and your word. And today I come clean with you. Bless us, Lord, in that truth. Make us new in Christ by faith. Let the old die and the new come in Christ. Let your Holy Spirit dwell in us that we might dwell with you and forever be transformed remarkably justified, made holy by you. In Jesus' name, amen.